Warning, this episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Kenny Rampton. As a featured member of the Jazz at Lincoln Center Orchestra and the Mingus Big Band, as well as numerous Broadway shows, Kenny has established himself as a versatile player and passionate educator. Through his nonprofit, the Jazz Outreach Initiative, Kenny is keeping jazz alive for young musicians in the Las Vegas area. But it's his gig as the trumpet voice on Sesame Street that might make Kenny the most popular trumpet player with kids around the world. So pour yourself a big glass, pull up a chair, and let the hang begin. All right, welcome to this episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and today I am with Kenny Rampton. Kenny, how's it going, man? Great. How you doing, man? Good to see you. Oh, man, it's good to be seen, you know? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, so, um, you know, this is, uh, this is a real first, first time hang. Kenny and I have uh, never met before today, so uh, we're going we find out a little bit about each other as we go along. So uh, this is the process. So uh, you're uh, you're originally from Vegas, right? Yes, sir. All right. Born and raised. Ah, uh, okay. Well, did you uh, did you start playing down there? I mean, like, where, did you do any any work before you uh, you you went to school in Berkeley? I know for a while, but uh, did you yeah. did you do as much gigging down there before you you left the city? Not really in Vegas, a little bit, but um, my parents were both musicians. Uh, my father. Uh, played percussion. He was a leading percussionist in town in Las Vegas. Growing, you know, when I was growing up, um, and so I was always around music. My mother studied to be a classical pianist, and she taught piano lessons to kids. And um, so I grew up around the music. And um, you know, growing growing up in Vegas with you know, especially with my dad. You know, he was playing. He played in what was called the Relief Band. Um, it was a relief orchestra led by a guy named Johnny Haig. Um, and they played a different hotel every night to give the house band a night off. So it was, the relief band was made up of, you know, some of the, you know, the top players in town, if not in the, in the country or the world. And uh, my dad was, was one of them. And so I got exposure to, uh, to that scene real young. You know, I, when I was, I started trumpet at 11. Um, by the, you know, I think I was 12 years old the first time I met Doc Severinsen because my dad was playing his show and I got to sit like right in front of him while he was rehearsing oh, with the band. And nice. then he sat with me and answered my questions. And, you know, so uh, in terms of my working in Las Vegas, I did some. Uh, my first professional gigs were with my dad's band. I'm with his dance band, you know, playing for church dances and whatnot. And then I did uh, my first time subbing on the strip in Las Vegas. I was 16. I played the New Year's gig for Lola Fulana. Um, and I did a little bit of professional work in Vegas here and there. Um, I went to college there, but you know, I went to college for two years and then I moved to Boston and really never looked back. Didn't never really had, uh, interest in moving back to Vegas at that point. I really wanted to pursue a career in jazz, you know, and, and saw Boston as a great stepping stone to moving to New York, which, you know, is pretty much where any serious jazz musician needs to be for the most part, or it used to be. That's how I felt anyways. Right. So. Yeah. So uh, when you went to uh, to Berkeley, uh, who were you studying with at the time? My first year, uh, I studied trumpet with um, with Jeff Stout, 
And my second, second year, I studied trumpet with Greg Hopkins. Um, now, I also studied composition, and, you know, I took classes uh, with her, took a line writing class with Herb Pomeroy. Um, I played in ensembles um, led by Billy Pierce and Donald Brown, who were two of my heroes. Um, they both played with Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers, which was my dream from, you know, the time I was a kid yeah. to play with Art Blakey. Um, and so, you know, I, I studied with quite a few people. My trumpet teachers were uh, first, like, like I said, uh, Jeff Stout and then Greg Hopkins. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, so uh, I, before we go any further, because I'm getting distracted already, it's the the uh, the squirrel in me. Uh, you have a lovely hat on. So, ah. uh, yes, <laughs> <laughs> I recognize that beard anywhere. Yeah. So, uh, how do you know Del Quadro? Um, I met Mike Del Quadro in Las Vegas. I was home to do some work with my nonprofit organization with a festival we licensed from Jazz Lincoln Center called Essentially Ellington that we brought to Las Vegas. And um, I was there with my partner, Gary Cordell. He's uh, my co-founder of our nonprofit organization, Jazz Outreach Initiative. And Gary was working with Mike Del Quadro on developing a new horn. And um, Gary introduced me to Mike. We hit it off. Um, it's funny because he really didn't try and sell me on a horn at all. In fact, yeah. you know, he was curious what I was playing and what I was, you know, and we talked. And um, next thing I know is, you know, I, I kind of gave a little bit of input on the horn he was developing with Gary. And next thing I know is he, um, uh, I don't know if it was six months later or whatever, I came to town to do some more work and he had a horn he had made for me that was basically, you know, uh, the same model that he was working on with Gary with some of the things that I was talking about that I liked in a, in a trumpet. And I didn't ask him to do it. You know, he just, he did it and, and let me, let me take it on the road and try it out and said, if you like it, you know, let's work something out. If not, it's cool. Yeah. You know, and you know, I've been playing his horn since I got that one and I got this, this one is a, is a recent one. I just got, this is um, one he developed with somebody else. It's called the mother. And it's basically a, a large bore version of the one that I was playing. And I just, I love his horns, best, best horns on the market that I've ever played. Um, just, and you know, it's, they're an extension of him. You know, he's just, he's a great guy with high integrity and he doesn't cut any corners. He has the best quality, everything, you know, valves, the, everything, every part of this instrument is, is top, top quality, you know, and he puts it together with a lot of love and care and consideration, you know, you can't go wrong. <laughs> All right, so so Del Quadro, that was your your plug, your the your free plug for today. And uh, <laughs> I wasn't planning on that, I, but you I, know, I, it just I, came I, out. I, I expect brisket in the mail, Mike. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> uh, no, he's 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 a really good guy. Um, so you know, actually, you kind of. Uh, Go ahead and, and went to that that direction. I was gonna, I want to talk to you about this a little bit later, but let's go ahead and talk about it now. You run a uh, a nonprofit um, jazz outreach initiative, and um, it, it it kind of sounds like to me, especially when you were talking about like you know uh, you know hanging with your dad and getting to meet uh, you know great players when you're younger. That that there's already this sense that had been instilled in you of uh, paying it forward with music. You know about yeah. keeping the traditions going and, and and allowing people to have exposure and um, you know not everybody has that not everybody has a dad that's in the industry and that's part of actually why I do this podcast because not everybody has the opportunity to sit down with a world class player like yourself and, and to just you know find out stuff you know you know talk to the person so um, 
what was your inspiration for uh, Jazz Outreach Initiative and, and what is it you guys are actually trying to do? Well, I mean, my inspiration was the education that I got in Las Vegas um, as a kid growing up there. The education that I got, you know, because I was my dad's son, you know, going and getting to meet Doc Severinsen, you know, getting, getting to meet, you know, when, before then, you know, I played piano. My mom was the piano player, right? And so I, I studied piano with her and my dad used to play Liberace's show. And so I got to meet Liberace when I was a little kid. And um, all the incredible musicians in Las Vegas when I was growing up who played with my dad, people like Rick, ba Rick Baptist was the lead trumpet player in the band that my dad played uh, in. Man. And we all know who that is. He's, oh, yeah. The first trumpet I ever played was Rick Baptist's trumpet. And he's the one who told my dad I should become a trumpet player. I was trying all the different instruments from all the cats into the band. Carl Fontana was a with trombone player. I played his trombone, you know, when I was trying instruments to decide what to play. I was 11. I was going to be going in sixth grade. You know, so I tried Carl Fontana's trombone, Rick Baptist's trumpet, mm -hmm. Charlie McLean's alto saxophone. Like, these are some <laughs> legendary musicians. Man. You know, and I, I got such an incredible education just going to rehearsals with my dad and hanging out. You know, my dad used to have jam sessions in the house when I was growing up in the garage with, with Carl Fontana and Tommy Turk, who is one of the only trombone players to have ever recorded with Charlie Parker. And he lived around the corner from us. You know, so I really got a very unique education just growing up in Las Vegas, having the parents that I had and the scene that it was. It was so thriving when I was a kid for music um, that I was constantly inspired you know, and, and I heard the bar set at such an incredibly high level that that's just how I thought it was supposed to be done. You know, I, was, I used to play jam sessions. At one of my best friends growing up in high school was a drummer named Jeff Falcone. Now, Jeff's, you know Jeff's brother, Danny. Right. And their father was Vinnie Falcone, who was Frank Sinatra's conductor. We used to play jam sessions together in their garage. And Vin, Vinnie would come and hang out and coach us. You know, at the time, we we're like thinking, you know, telling Jeff, man, tell your dad to leave us alone. Right. Looking back on us, man, this is one of the greatest piano players and conductors to ever live was hanging out with us. So, you know, I mean, that's those are just a few examples of what I grew up around. You know, so now I'm on the other side of the coin and I, I traveled through Vegas a few years ago with with Winton and Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra. And I invited some band, band directors to come to our sound check and bring their kids. So, so we had about 250 kids or so show up at the sound check, and I did a Q&A with them afterwards. And, man, they were dressed nicely. They had good questions. They were quiet, thoughtful, respectful. And I just, I teared up, man, and I saw myself in those kids. I saw little mirrors of myself. And I was like, man, I'm on the other side of that coin now. You know, and I wanted, and all these kids were truly interested in what we were doing. So I was like, man, what can I do to help inspire the future generations of, you know, from my hometown? Mm -hmm. You know, and I, you know, my, my best friend, Gary Cordell, um, had a barbecue in his backyard that night. He's an excellent barbecue. I don't know if you know Gary or... I don't know him. I, I need is, to know him, apparently. You do need to know him. He's, he is a bad you-know-what and um, incredible trumpet player, incredible arranger, great guy, heart of gold, absolute biggest heart on the planet. And he, um, he had a barbecue at his house that night for Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra, whoever could come, and some other local, you know, musicians, friends, whatnot. And we hung out, and Gary and I were in the kitchen talking, and we were talking about these kids. I said, man, we got to do something for these kids. You know, and that's when the idea for creating a nonprofit organization in Las Vegas was really born. You know, and um, it's a long, long story to get into everything. But it's really 
Um, the organization is an extension of my friendship with Gary Cordell. Gary and I both studied with a trumpet player named Walter Blanton at UNLV, who was not only our teacher, but he was, he was like our second father for both of us. And for most, most anybody who studied with Walt would tell you the same thing. He, would, um, he was one of the greatest educators, if not the greatest educator I've ever come across. And he instilled such a passion for music and for trumpet and for creativity in both of us um, that he made me want to do better than I knew I could. And um, same for Gary. And so, you know, we started this organization and, and it's really an extension of our friendship and an extension of Gary and, and mine, uh, with our, both of our relationships with Walt Blanton, who is really our musical father. Um, and, um, you know, so when I had an opportunity to bring an essentially Ellington Regional Festival to Las Vegas from Jazz at Lincoln Center, that's when he, we uh, said, okay, let's really figure out what we need to do here. And we, that's when we started the organization in order to have something in place in case we needed it to make this festival happen. That was our first act was to create that festival. The next thing we did is we created a jazz studies program for Nevada School of the Arts. Um, which we uh, we started, stayed with it for a year, then we stepped away from it. They're up and running, they're doing great on their own, and we decided we wanted to focus on our own thing. And so now we've also started, we've got uh, two outreach programs. Uh, we've just started the Las Vegas Youth Jazz Orchestra, uh, and we're looking to create a band director's academy, which is will also be licensed from Jazz Lincoln Center. And, um, you know, quite a few other things in the works. I've spoken with folks at the... Uh, Jazz Workshop, which is um, the the Mingus Big Band. Uh, that organization is called Jazz Workshop, and it's a, it, I was with the Mingus Big Band for close to 20 years. And they have a high school festival they do in New York. I've spoken with them about uh, creating uh, a regional or a West Coast version of that in Las Vegas, featuring Charles Mingus's music, specifically music from the Mingus Big Band. Mm -hmm. um, so I've got a lot of things. You know, it's tricky to try and get things off the ground. You've got to work with a school district and make sure you're not stepping on anybody's toes or getting in the way of other programs that are happening. Right. So one thing at a time, you know, and um, right now during pandemic, you know, is, is makes everything extra tricky. But um, Jazz Outreach Initiative is um, really, I mean, it's, it's like nurturing a child. You know, we started it off, Gary and I did, like I said, to have something in place uh, in order to bring the essentially Ellington Festival to Las Vegas. But Jazz Outreach Initiative has grown into so much more than that. It's, you know, developing programs and it's, it's just, it's like nurturing a child and giving it what it needs as it grows so it can grow up healthy and strong. So during this COVID and everything, we're spending a lot of time with, with jazz, with, with like, well, we call it joy, J-O-I. Yeah. Um, with joy, we've expanded our board. We're in the process of moving from being a working board to being a governing board. We passed our bylaws and all kinds of those things that new businesses need to do. Right. And we've really um, taken advantage of the, the downtime where all of our concerts, all of our programs were essentially put on hold. And we've taken that time to really build out our infrastructure, infrastructure and strengthen the organization. But um, I'm super excited about it. And, um, you know, it's, I could talk all day about Jazz Outreach Initiative and the impact that it's making on kids. That's the main thing is hearing from these kids. Now some of the kids who've gone through our programs are going to Juilliard. They're going to Berkeley School of Music to, um, 
uh, Michigan State. You know, they're going to UNLV to, to some really great music programs. And to know that we were a part of that kid's um, influence and helping them to get on, on their path as musicians just is, means the world to me and to be able to affect young people through music and music education. Oh, that's, a, that's awesome. And uh, if anybody wants to check out more about it, there's a, a link in the show notes. Uh, you can go to their website and you can you know, find out more and contribute if you feel moved to do so. So, uh, you Please know. Do. And we got a free newsletter too. We got two editions of it. We're working on the third. We got videos of the kids, all kinds of fun stuff. So wow. that is awesome. Um, and, and it's, uh, you know, now the importance of, uh, you know, music, obviously, uh, as we're going through this COVID situation and, and you know, we, we've seen, have seen basically the shutdown of the uh, entertainment industry, the live entertainment portion, particularly, um, it has given uh, a lot of people who have been spending all of their time performing, it's, it's given them a lot of free time on their hands. And some people don't know how to deal with that. I mean, it's, it, the situation is stressful enough as it is, and it's easy to find yourself in a downward spiral. But, uh, you know, this, it seems like that's given you something to focus on and to, to apply your creative energies towards. So um, what other things have you been doing to kind of keep, you know, basically keep yourself together uh, while the, you know, the, the pandemic has been, has shut down so much of the, the live performances? Well, I mean, it's been a challenge for me, just like it's been a challenge for everybody. Um, and I've been guilty of going down those downward spirals just as, as much as anybody else, you know, if not more. You know, I've, I've always struggled with that anyways in my life. And um, I f I've always found and I find it even more true now than ever before that it's important to be aware that in any given situation, there's a positive and a negative to it and it's important to be aware of the negative but not dwell on it and f try and find the positive and focus on that and um that's what i've been trying to do um and that, that's what I've, i haven't always been completely successful but that's what i've been trying to do like for instance with joy like i mentioned instead of dwelling on all the concerts we had to cancel and the fact that we just got the las vegas youth jazz orchestra off the ground after six weeks of rehearsal we had to stop with no final concert, yeah. you know, and rather than dwell on that, we found um, other things to do, like build out our, our infrastructure of the organization, strengthen the board, do all these things that we're doing, plus find ways to be engaging with the kids online. And we've got another blessing with, you know, in terms of people who have come to joy and to be a part of the organization. One is a gentleman named Kurt Miller, who is a master recording engineer in Las Vegas and was a mentor to the program. And he volunteered uh, his time to make videos of these kids playing the charts we'd been rehearsing with them. And um, so we've got three videos out of the kids playing um, that are all engineered and, you know, mixed and mastered by, uh, by Kurt Miller, the video and the, the audio. And it's really helped the organization to get attention. Um, I reached out to Jazz and Lincoln Center, asked them would they share this on their platform, and they said, sure. And so now these kids, you know, one of the video had over, videos had over 7,000 views, you know, so that's 7,000 people who've heard these kids that otherwise would not have heard them, 
you know, and so there's, there's some positives that is, that have come out of this in terms of me with my own time. You know, I split my time between four different things. I have four jobs. Uh, first, uh, with jazz, the Lincoln center orchestra with Wynton Marsalis. That's my first job. The second one is with, um, Sesame street. I record all the music for the TV show that all the trumpet for the TV show. Third job is with Jazz Outreach Initiative. And the fourth one is a buddy of mine from high school. We played the McDonald's All-American Band in high school. He was a lead trumpet player. Um, he went on to get a degree in mechanical engineering, um, then got a master's in, um, in marketing and has a career uh, in things other than music, but he still plays and he's still a great trumpet player and still loves a trumpet. And... Um, you know, we've been friends all these years, like since, you know, when was it? I was a senior in 1985, I think I met him. So 35 years ago, something like that. Is that right? 35? Damn. He's yeah. getting old. Yeah. Anyways, um, <laughs> we, uh, we decided to develop a plunger mute together, you know, and so now I've got this plunger mute that's out on the market. Here, here it is. Um, and it's selling worldwide. It's actually doing really well. So that's my fourth job is, is you know, plunger mutes. And we're looking to develop another mute as well. We're, you know, we're talking about it. Right now, we're, we've got plunger mutes for trumpet, and we're going to have them for trombone soon. And um, we got one more coming up that I think we're going to do for trumpet and trombone. We'll see. But um, so, you know, I'm utilizing my time to focus on all four of these jobs, you know, whereas normally I'm on the road, you know, six months out of the year. I'm on tour and I don't have a lot of time to put into other things. You know, I'm, I'm on the road touring day in, day out. You're working, you're performing, you're traveling, you know, and during COVID, you know, this is the longest stretch I've been home in 20 years, probably. Yeah. You know, before I was with the Lincoln Center Band, which I've, I've been a member of the Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra for 10 years now. Before that, I was with the, the Mingus Big Band for almost 20 years and touring with many, many other people during that time and before. So I've, I haven't been home for this stretch of a time in a long, long time. So I'm really, it, first of all, it feels great to me to, to be able to sleep in my bed every night, you know, and, and just to be home, I'm kind of embracing that. And also I'm finding I'm able to get a lot of work done for these other projects other than just being on tour. Um, so, you know, I've, I've been util utilizing my time well, doing that stuff uh, the best that I can and, you know, uh, recording from home for Sesame Street, doing recordings from home for Jazz Lincoln Center, teaching a lot online, um, trying to make an impact uh, with younger musicians still, trying, you know, trying to make a difference in the community. You know, as the older I get, the more I realize that's what really matters. It's not about getting a gig or making money or having my own name out there, my own records, making an impact in the future with the future generation. And, you know, so that's really what is most important to me. So I can, I'm finding that I can do that during this time. So that's a real positive, you know, rather than sitting and whine because, you know, tours got canceled or I can't play gigs or whatever, you know, that doesn't do anybody any good, you know? So I'm really trying to focus on the positive, be aware of the negative, but focus on the positive. I have time for other stuff and I can utilize that time in a positive way. Yeah, I, you know, I've had this conversation with a, a number of, of players and, and even people from different industries. And uh, it, the, the great thing about uh, having as your profession something that you love is that every day you get to do something that you love. Um, but sometimes the dark side of this, and I, and I went through this when uh, I was, uh, you know, 
touring mostly on the Eastern seaboard uh, during the, the mid eighties. So, uh, you know, I was working with a, a band. We work 48 weeks a year, you know, you know, work, you know, so it was, it was a lot of playing. Um, and I found that during that time um, I started to look at playing as a job. And, mm-hmm. you know, when it used to be, I, I just loved to play. And then it was about, you know, when's the next gig coming up and uh, I had to step away and, and now I have a different perspective on things, but I think a lot of other people are, are, are at that point too, where, you know, they had been playing for their living. And then when the ability to make money at it uh, has dried up, at least hopefully temporarily that, you know, they, they're not touching their instrument, you know, and this is probably the time when you need to be on the horn one, you got the time to practice stuff that, you know, you really want to practice, but, then you, you should be able to have that fresh approach to, hey, look, I don't have to worry about, you know, learning this chart for this uh, this upcoming concert. I just get to play because I love to play. So, um, you know, and I think that's where a lot of what you're doing with the uh, jazz outreach uh, program is helpful because uh, music is an escape for so many people. It's, it's a way to do something that that is transcendent. Uh, it's, it's not just, you know, simply teaching them a, a skill or a trade while it is something that's marketable. It's something that uh, is transcendent for you as a person, but it also touches the lives of so many people. So. Um, yeah, kind of- no, I mean, I honestly feel music is part of the healing arts. I think it, you know, through playing music, it can heal us, you know, through listening to music, it can heal. Um, you know, and for me, that's a big thing right now. You know, and I think a lot of musicians are doing a lot of soul searching because, I, you know, the old joke, how do you get a musician to complain? Give them a gig, right? Yeah. Um, and I've been, you know, I've been guilty of that as just as much as anybody else, I'll be right. honest. Man. Mm-hmm. You know, but um, it's important to understand and to get back to the reason we all started playing. You know, yeah. it was fun. Yeah. You know, and it's um, it's important to get back to that, man. You know, I remember, you know, there was a period when I was doing a lot of Broadway work, playing mostly commercial music. And um, I would look around the pit and when musicians weren't playing, they're sitting there reading books, doing crossword puzzles, um, time to play. And it's almost like it's a drag because they got to play and it interrupts them reading books, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not healthy, you know, for a musician to have that mentality. Right. You know, every note we play should matter, what, no matter what the circumstances. And it's a blessing to be able to do that and make a living at it. And, you know, I know I've done a lot of soul searching that way. And, and I think a lot of musicians are as well during this time. We have time to practice. So are we practicing? You know, if not, why not? Why are we playing to begin with? We need to ask ourselves those questions and get to a deeper place with who we are and what we're doing and the intention behind what we do. Because that matters. And so through that process, I think a lot of people are going through a lot of much needed um, spiritual healing, man, to be honest. Yeah. Well, you know, I I really feel like uh, once this phase that we're in is over, um, that we're going to see a new level of creativity burst out. Because, you know, there's, a, especially with jazz, I mean, you know, uh, this is uh, so much of, of what is done as an improvisational player, uh, it comes from your experience. I mean, you know, you could, you, could, you could learn all the bebop licks in the world, 
But if they're just coming from a technical place, they're not going to really touch anybody. It's, you know, what comes from your soul. And as we've gone through this, I think people are going to have, they're going to go into some dark places and they're going to have come through those places and they're going to have new lessons and new experiences and, and new sensations and emotions that are going to be able to come out in their music. And I think we're going to see, um, something that's, that's really kind of beautiful come out of all of this, uh, this craziness. Amen. <laughs> I agree. Or at least I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's unavoidable. I think that's going to happen. I think it is happening already. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, let's, let's go back to the uh, jazz at Lincoln center. Um, the, uh, the, the idea that um, you're playing with uh, that, organization i think is just a very apropos because uh yeah winton has uh he's he's established himself as kind of the the voice of of jazz for for our generation in terms of you know, especially trying to maintain the history and the integrity of of the art uh you know pushing it forward but at the same time trying to to make sure people are uh don't lose sight of the roots so uh, what's it been uh, like working with with someone of of winton's uh passion and drive and obvious talent i mean the guy's <laughs> scary yeah well i mean it's it's inspiring you know at times intimidating but even when it's intimidating it's inspiring you know it's not intimidating in a negative way he um he sets the bar as high as anybody I've ever worked with or worked for um, as a trumpet player, as a musician, as a composer, as an arranger, as a band leader, as a boss on all of those things. He's, uh, you know, I can't say enough good things about the man. Um, you know, I first noticed like before I was in the band, I come into, into sub and I noticed when he walked in the room, he greeted every person individually. He'd go up, when he walked in the room, he'd just go up and say hello to everybody, shake everybody's hand, one at a time, you know, and he wasn't making a big deal out of it. I just noticed that he did that. And that, that in itself, in and of itself, says something about somebody's character, that he takes the time to greet each person individually. And, you know, that's such a warm way of being. You know, it's caring, it's showing, you know, it's, it shows a lot about who he is. Um... He's very giving of his time, uh, and he's very open uh, to suggestion as well. When we rehearse with the band, uh, anybody in the band is open to, to make suggestion about anything, and Winton wants to hear it. He sincerely wants to hear it from everybody because he understands that the band is a collection of of some incredible people and musicians and it would be unintelligent not to listen to everybody because everybody's got a unique perspective and, and we might just turn everybody on to something they hadn't thought of before you know so it's really more of a collective than any other band I've been in now Winton is the band leader and the boss you know but in terms of having input and uh, everybody being able to speak their mind and, and, and have a voice it's truly a collective, and um, I've never been in a band like this before where it's like that to this extent. And also, you know, Winton encourages everybody in the band to write and arrange for the band. And I've never seen that in the history of jazz where there was a, a big band with this many 
writers and arrangers in it, and we play everybody's music. We've now done, I think, two records where uh, recordings where one has been released, um, the other one is, is in the can, but um, where everybody in the band was engaged to write a movement for the record, or write a piece, you know, with a common theme. So the first one we did is called um, Rock Chalk Suite, and it was dedicated to the basketball program in, uh, at, uh, uh, what's, what's the school in Kansas? Um, Lawrence, Kansas, University of Kansas, the Jayhawks. Mm-hmm. Their basketball program, and they've had uh, basketball luminaries go through that program. You know, and so each one of us was assigned a movement and to write a movement based on a different basketball player. You know, so I wrote one uh, called The Passing Game, my move, movement for that for that particular record. It was about, um, oh, what's my man's? I'm drawing a blank all, all of a sudden, Hoagland. Um, he was a point guard for the team back in the day when they won uh, the national championship in, I think it was 1952. And... Um, It'll, it'll, his name will pop my head in a second. But um, in any case, um, I've never seen another band do that, where there are that many rangers and writers and arrangers in the band, you know, who had equal voice. And it's, it's a very unique uh, organization in that. So, I mean, every, man, every rehearsal, every sound check, every gig is a lesson on some level, being around Winton and being around not just Winton, but all the members of the band. You know, there's some incredible people in that band that, you know, you can learn from. To, and, you know, so to be around them, it's just, I miss them dearly, man. I mean, they're not only incredible musicians, they're dear friends. You know, and I stay in touch with, with, with most of them, you know, and we have a weekly call, you know, during COVID. You know, every week we, we have a call and, you know, a, a Zoom call like this, and we all hang out and talk and get updates on what's going on with the organization on the last project we did on the next project we're doing, you know, we're getting updates. And so we're still in touch as a band regularly, which I love, but I miss playing with those guys, man. I really miss playing with that band. I shouldn't say guys with those musicians. There's been a lady in the band for the last couple of years, uh, Camille Thurman, who's a phenomenal tenor player and vocalist. But, um, you know, it's, it's an incredible experience being a part of that, uh, being part of that group. And, Winton is, I mean, he's the best, man. He's just a great guy and uh, inspiration all all the way around, man. He's just, you know, he's he's a blessing in my life for sure. Ah, That's great to hear. Uh, It uh, seems that that, uh, the educational component is a a big part of of, uh, both the the Jazz at Lincoln Center and and your Joy uh, project. Uh, Is that something that you you know, that you do a lot of the teaching or, or, for, or for yourself that, you know, that you're, you're more on that educational uh, tract than just, you know, being a, uh, a pure performer. That's a relatively new development for me. Um, my parents were both involved in education. Um, when I came to New York, I left Vegas, you know, and I went to Berkeley School of Music and then in Boston and then came to New York. I really just wanted to play. Um, through working with Jazz Lincoln Center, um, education is a large, very large component of that organization. And it's not a requirement for all members of the orchestra to, uh, to be involved in education and do master classes or clinics or whatever, but it is encouraged. You know, so when I got hired and I was in the band, they were uh, kind of assigning people to do some education projects and I was asked if I want to participate in education 
And I said, well, I've never really done it before. I'm not too comfortable. At the time, I was, I was actually very uncomfortable speaking in front of people. I had a real, I stuttered. Um, I, I really had a, a bad, <laughs> you know, I wasn't comfortable with it. And, um, but I wanted to be, you know, so I said, you know, I want to be open to this. So I want to try, but, you know, for the first little while, can you team me up? with people, some people who are really master educators that I can learn from and just follow their lead. So there are a few uh, who I asked to be teamed up with, Victor Goins, um, Ted Nash, uh, who else? Um, there's a few, few different guys that I knew did a lot of teaching. Um, so I asked specifically to be teamed up with them so I could follow their lead and just chime in now and then and see how right. they do it. And so I did that, and then I started going out on my own. The first time I did it on my own was in Cuba. With, it was over 100 trumpet students at, at a conservatory there. I was so nervous, man, and, you know, I, I had a stack of paper with, you know, section, like four trumpet parts, like five different tunes to bring kids up to play, and I didn't know what I was going to do. I had notes. And um, Ted Nash, before I went in, saw how nervous I was, and he's, and he's like, man, before you start – after they introduce you, just say, hey, does anybody have any questions for me before I begin? So I did that, and the questions started coming. I started answering, and it just turned into this constant flow for two hours. And it, it went by like nothing, and I, was, I didn't even look at my notes, you know. And it was, it was so much fun, and I really, from that point on, I've embraced it. And I really love working with students and love education and I have certain things that I, you know, will draw upon from my own personal knowledge um, to help in, in different circumstances. But generally, when I work or do, do a master class with a band, I don't have an idea really of what I'm going to say until I get there and hear them. Um, I don't really need to write down the notes because I've lived it for the last, you know, 30 some years um, as a professional musician. So those are the notes that I draw upon. Because I've I've played in so many different uh, situations with so many different bands, be it jazz, classical, um, Latin music, uh, salsa, um, R and B, blues, uh, any you know any kind of commercial music. Um, I've I've got a pretty um, strong resume that way and a lot to draw upon that I can I can share with people and help help them to get better. So you know, through Jazz at Lincoln Center, the opportunities to get involved with education, it's really kind of lit a fire in me for education, which led to the development of joy. Um, and it really, you know, looking back on my life, it comes from my parents. My, they were both involved in education from the time I was a kid. My mom was a school teacher. She, she taught, uh, I think, first grade and third grade. And she always had a piano in her classroom. And she used music to teach general education to the kids yeah. you know and my dad was involved in education too he had a, a group that it was an outreach program a group called planet percussion that used to send out to elementary schools um to teach the kids about percussion instruments from the time i was a kid i was i was in that and so now this is full circle you know what i'm doing now and it's just it's a, it's a natural evolution for me that i never saw coming it just showed up and it's like hey this is what you got to do now and I just, you know, I did it because I love it, you know, just yeah. like everything that I do. Yeah, uh, that's good. I mean, uh, it sounds like, uh, you know, it wasn't something that you were you were chasing, but, uh, you know, your circumstances didn't definitely set you up for that really, really well. So I'm just, yeah. uh, you know, uh, happy to embrace you, it. And, and, yeah. 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 That, that's that's a big one. Um, 
So let's let's uh let's go back in time just a little bit, getting the the uh, hot tub time machine here. And, <laughs> That's uh, dangerous. <laughs> uh, one of your, if it wasn't your first gig, it was definitely one of your first gigs. But I think it was your first road uh, your road gig uh, was with Ray Charles, if I'm That's not true. mistaken. Yeah. So uh, how was that? You know, uh, working with with the Ray Charles Orchestra. Um, man, I mean, it was incredible. You know, I was at the time I was living in New York, you know, I moved to New York and, um, I was working a temp job, you know, I was working in a bank, opening up safe deposit boxes for people, you know, practicing down in the vault. I'd bring my horn down there with a tape deck, practice along with Woody Shaw, you know, transcribe or whatever. And, um, made a, a rehearsal band in New York, and one of the trumpet players there was a guy named Jeff Kay, who was with Ray Charles Orchestra. He had, um, they were during their, it was during their off season, and he took my number, and um, uh, we took the subway together after rehearsal. And next thing I know, a couple months go by, and I get a call from Ray saying he's looking for a trumpet player. Would I be interested? And Jeff Kay had recommended me just based on playing in a rehearsal with me. And um, so I flew out to L.A., uh, they flew me out, and um, I auditioned. I didn't actually, I thought he called me for the gig. I didn't realize it was an audition. Um, <laughs> so I flew out, and it turns out it was an audition. And But I I, I won the chair and um, started working with him. And um, I was with the band for, for about a year and did a world tour. We were on the, on the road for nine months straight. Uh, world tour went, you know, all around the world, man. And... Um, it was an incredible learning experience for me, man. Hearing Ray sing every night, he never had a bad night. He never had a bad song. He never had a bad note, you know. There were certain times, there were times when his voice would crack a little bit, you know, but it wasn't, didn't make it bad. It made yeah. it real. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, and uh, I learned so much just from being on that bandstand with him, you know, and it was a grueling, grueling tour, nine months straight of one-nighters and hit-and-runs, for the most part, I think we played played a week at the Blue Note in New York. So we so I was able to come home and kind of sleep in my own bed for that week. Um, but for the most part, it was nine months on the road straight, you know. And it was hard, you know. That was my first road gig, and that's a hell of a road gig um, yeah. for anybody to have. Not to mention for it to be your first road gig. I had no road chops. I was as green as they come, you know. And um, it was it was a great learning experience for me in every way, um, but um, it was it was it had its challenges in many ways. You know, yeah. the money was very light. You know, it didn't pay well. Uh, you weren't able to really save any money. Uh, you know, but it was playing with Ray Charles. It, it, it's uh, I made some lifelong friends there who were, were still very close friends to this day. I just heard from. Actually, from one of them today and another one yesterday, another one the day before, friends from Ray Charles' band um, that I'm in touch with. And, you know, they're dear friends of mine, and um, we shared in that experience together. And, you know, it was, you know, I'll say it again, man, it was not easy. Yeah. It was hard. It was, a, it, was a, it was a rough gig. You know, so the friends that you make in a gig like that, it's like they're like old war buddies, I imagine. Yeah. You know, we, we went through a lot of deep, difficult times together, but we also had a lot of joy and a lot of passion for music together. Mm -hmm. So it was, but I mean, Ray Charles, you know, to this day, I don't, 
I don't know if I can name one person as my favorite of anything, but if I had to pick one as my favorite singer of all time, it very well might be Ray Charles. He's certainly in my top five of all time. Goes between you know him and Sarah Vaughn and Donny Hathaway and Ella Fitzgerald, a few you know a few others. But um, he's Ray Charles is you know in my opinion one of the greatest musicians of any genre to ever live. You know yeah. he's he's like Mozart. You know it's it's just he's one of the true greats of all time in music. Period. You know so. Yeah. To get to share a stage with him, Ooh, man, it was a lesson. Let me tell you. Yeah, well, that that's you know what I was thinking is that uh, you know if if you're going to learn, you know, first first of all, getting thrown in the deep end is bad enough, but when you get thrown in the deep end on on a gig with someone who, you know, is one of the legends of music, not just you know jazz or R and B or whatever. Ray just he was just the consummate musician. He personified music to me. Yeah. You know. Yeah. And, <laughs> you know, and I'm sure that book was not an easy blow. Um, I mean, I didn't play the lead book. The, the lead book was very, very difficult, man. Chuck Parrish killed that book. One of the greatest lead trumpet players I've ever played with, man. I don't know if you know Chuck Parrish out of Chicago. He's incredible, man. Um, he was a lead player on Ray's Man when I when I was on it. I started off on I think it was the third book, and then I moved to the second book. Um, and um, you know, it it had some meat to it. It definitely has some meat to it. It wasn't you know, wasn't a walk in the park. But um, man, what great music! What great music! Yeah, yeah. Well, that that definitely was an education every night. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. uh, and so uh, now you're doing the Sesame Street thing. So you go from from Ray to uh, to Burton Ernie. So how 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 did that all happen for you? Well, um, I mean it's funny because you know I've always been a fan of Sesame Street, man, since I was a little kid. Like most yeah. of us, you know, I yeah, grew up yeah. with it. You know, and like when when my son was born and I'd be practicing, you know, he would come and grab the bell of my trumpet and pull it down and say, "No, play play Elmo." You know, he wanted me to play, you know, my son loved Elmo. My, my son loves Sesame Street. And that's before I was doing the gig. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I knew the trumpet player at the time who was doing the gig was Glenn Drews, um, who's still, still a friend. Man, I've known Glenn for a long time. And it was an entirely different music department then than it is now. Um, but I remember Glenn, you know, I remember talking to Glenn about it one time. We were on a, on a gig together. I think it was at Birdland. We were playing with um, Tommy Igo's big band there. And... Um, Glenn said something to the effect of uh, what an honor it is to do that gig because he realizes that kids all over the world, the first time they hear a trumpet will be on that show and it's the sound of his trumpet. And so he took that gig very seriously, you know, with that kind of responsibility, understanding understanding that, you know, it's, and it's pretty heavy when you think, I, did, I never really thought about it. Yeah, I was like, damn, yeah. you're right, man, that is... You know, and um, that is cool. And then um, a few years later uh, at Sesame Street, for whatever reason or reasons, they decided, the organization decided to make a change in the music department. And the music crew who had been doing the show for 30 years or more, um, they decided to let them go. The entire music department, the whole crew, the band, everybody. And this is before I got involved with it. <clears throat> but they brought in 
uh, Bill Sherman and Joe Feidler to be to head up the new music department. Now they were doing the sh a show at the time on Broadway called In the Heights, written by uh, Lin Manuel Miranda. Um, now Bill Sherman and Lin Manuel are very very close friends. I think they used to be roommates, and um, so Bill Sherman helped to. Uh, orchestrate the music for In the Heights and for other things that, that he's done since. Um, and uh, I'm not quite sure how it went down, but Sesame Street brought Bill Sherman in to, uh, I don't know if Lynn Mount Manuel was involved or not, no idea. But I know they brought Bill in, and Bill was known for his work within the Heights. And uh, Bill brought other people in with him to help build the music department, and the main person he brought was Joe Feidler, who was the lead trombone player on In the Heights. Um, now, Joe Feidler and I had been friends for many, many years. We used to do $15 gigs together in the village back when we first moved to New York, you know, or, you know, play for your, you know, play, play for a meal, right. you know, whatever, you know, and came up through the ranks. Joe has since gone on to play with the Mingus Big Band. He's played with Jazz Lingus and Orchestra. He's been a regular member with Eddie Palmieri uh, with his group. Um, he's, he's done all kinds of stuff. He leads his own band, has his own records out. But Joe was brought in basically to be the music director for Sesame Street. So they put together a new band, um, and uh, it's been going since. Now, I wasn't the first trumpet player. They brought in another trumpet player when they first reformed the music organization or the music division for Sesame Street, um, who's a dear friend of mine, um, and didn't work out. And, you know, I'm not sure exactly what went down, but I think it was a mutual decision that um you know it just it didn't work out and so they brought me in and asked me if i would be willing to do it and i'm like yeah man i but i, I didn't want to do it without the blessing of my friend who had been doing it so i called and said i want you know once you know i got this call what you know are you cool with me doing this i don't want you know because I, I learned a long time ago man the being successful in your career is about building relationships and it's you know you don't want anybody to perceive you've stabbed him in the back or something right. over a gig. Right. And I wanted to be very clear that that was not the case um, and make sure that, you know, so it all worked out. And now I've been doing Sesame Street for about 10 years. And um, uh, Joe Feidler is the trombone player on the show and the music director. He does a majority of the uh, orchestrating uh, arranging and does a fair amount of, of the writing as well. Bill Sherman does some writing. They bring in a lot of the people to do writing as well. Um, Paul, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his last name all of a sudden, also does writing. They, they brought in a lot of Broadway folks to do, do writing. Um, but it's, um, I got to say, Sesame Street is probably the most highly efficient gig I have um, in terms of everybody just being on top of their game. Like every recording session is just like clockwork. Nobody misses. Everybody is just on it, man. It's uh, we've got a great engineer named Tyler who takes care of. Uh, now that we've gone into COVID, we're all recording from home, and so Tyler sends us the master Pro Tool session. We record our pro parts and send them back to Tyler, and he puts every layers everything on top. And um, he's just phenomenal in what he does. Um, it's it's a great uh, great organization. Our my man Gary Meyer does all the saxophone and woodwind stuff. Phenomenal woodwind player. His flute and piccolo playing and clarinet playing. All I mean, it's just on on such a high level. Um, not to mention, you know, he nails all the saxophone parts and you know oboe. You name it, man, he does it. And um, it's it's just a great crew. 
and it's something that just kind of came my way, you know, and um, it's, uh, it's, it's a lot of fun to be a part of that team and they're great guys to work with. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. I have a, a friend who has worked off and on during the years uh, for the organization. And uh, she's, she's told me about how the people that have, that have come through Sesame street uh, it, it's become kind of a family. Um, so yeah, so that, that's really cool. Paul um, Rudolph. His name is Paul Rudolph. Paul Rudolph. Okay, cool. 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 Um, so speaking of home recording, uh, what are you using for your, your gear when you're doing those sessions? Um, well, I've used, uh, basically the, the gear that they use in the studio. I've just got, I bought them for myself as an investment. Um, when I first started doing Sesame street, we were at a different studio and I was using an AKG, uh, 414 mic. That's what they used in the studio back then. Um, in the last few years, um, we switched to a different studio and they upgraded the mics. So now I'm using a Coles 4038, I believe is the number of it, or 3840, 4038, I think. Anyways, it's a Coles ribbon mic um, and um, recording into my computer using Pro Tools. Um, I've got the latest version of Pro Tools. And, you know, I got to go through, uh, I use a, uh, well, here it is this cloud cloud lifter cloud lifter. yes i have one of those you know so here's my mic you know i, I got it right here i'm not gonna pull it down yeah anyways um and i'm using a for the interface right now i'm using a babyface pro um i've got on order the new symphony by apogee mm-hmm. um and it's it's a new one that just is just now coming out it's supposed to come out during the first quarter of this year but it's been delayed due to covid so I'm supposed to be getting that next month. Um, and that's about it, man. I use, you know, my Del Quadro trumpet, you know, I've been using my mother as of late. And mm-hmm. um, if I got to record two trumpets, then I, I will use two different trumpets. Uh, if I got to double track something, you know, I use different mouthpieces so it doesn't phase, mm-hmm. you know, and different trumpets. I'll, I'll just, I'll switch it up. So it sounds like two different people playing it. And um, yeah, that's about it. Mutes. I mean, that's part of the equipment, right? Yeah, <laughs> you use your uh, KR Indigo uh, plunger. You know it. With the candy penny. You dig? And I got my Ray Robinson here, my brand new. I love this. This mute's from the 20s in perfect condition. Um, so, you know, I got a good set of mutes here. <laughs> nice. Get the nice. job done. Yeah. Hey, you got to do what you got to do, man. <laughs> that's all there is to it. Um, so, if. Um, if I may ask you, uh, you know, we're talking about equipment. Uh, so you're playing the, the Del Quadro horn. What kind of mouthpiece setup do you use generally? Um, I have a custom mouthpiece made by Greg Black. Um, in fact, I just got a new version of it. Um, I'm trying out different back bores. But this is, um, this back bore screws off, you know. But this is a Greg Black mouthpiece. The back bore is a K4, which I think the K stands for Kenny. Um, and, uh, it's based on his number four, I believe is what he said. I don't know a whole hell of a lot about mouthpiece. I'm going to be honest, man, you know, but this is basically, I used to play on a, on a, it was a bathtub, man. Um, I got from this cat named Hal Oringer back when I first moved to New York, who had a wall of trumpets. He had a photography studio with a wall of trumpets hanging, you know, probably a hundred horns. 
And I used to go and hang out there with Claudia Roditi, who was a teacher and a friend yeah. of mine. Mm-hmm. And um, Hal had a mouthpiece that was close to the rim that I was playing on, um, but it was, you know, just, it was a bathtub. It was huge. It was about a, a 3C rim, mm-hmm. but it had been way bored out. The, the hole, the mouth, everything, the, the cup. Um, it was so big, though, it, it, I got a really big, fat, dark sound on it, and I loved it. So I didn't care. I was young and dumb, you know, and just use that for everything. You know, I, of course, I had very limited range and <laughs> <in, in> endurance, <laughs> yeah. but I didn't care because I got the sound I liked and just dealt with it. And, you know, eventually, you know, I, Bobby Shue came into town and gave me a lesson. We were hanging out. He was friends. I've known Bobby since I was a kid. He and my dad were friends, you know, going mm-hmm. back to that, that. And Bobby's like, man, what are you playing on? You know, and, and he's like, man, you got to get something more efficient. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I don't, you know. And when I checked my ego at the door and realized, you know, who I was talking to and listened to what he had to say, it made a lot of sense. And so Bobby designed me a new mouthpiece based on that. Um, and so uh, I contacted Greg Black, you know, and basically gave Greg the specs that Bobby told me I should be playing on and had Greg make me uh, a mouthpiece based on that. Mm-hmm. And so I played on that for a long time. And then, and it was, it was much more efficient. My sound didn't really change and it made my life a lot easier. It was great. Yeah. But then I started playing some lead and really wanted to explore that. So I called Bobby and he gave me new specs to give to Greg. So then Greg made me a second mouthpiece that was a lead version of my mouthpiece. So I started using that and was playing on both of those for some time. And then um, from that point on, um, Greg and I, Greg Black and I have been friends and he's helped me and um, I've tweaked things here and there and developed things and changed this or changed that and I've had several mouthpieces in between. And this is where I'm at right now. This is still that same rim. I don't change rims. Yeah. Whether it's trumpet, piccolo, trumpet, cornet or flugelhorn, it's the same rim. The cup shape changes, um, the hole changes, the backbore, you know, all the other things change. You know, I just call Greg and say, hey, man, this is how I feel playing on this. I'm experiencing this. Can we make it more like this? And Greg says, yeah, I know what to do. And so, you know, now, now he's given me, I've, I think I've got four different backbores and two different uh, tops. You know, mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm playing with them right now. But this is basically, it's like a 3C rim, a little more of a bite to the rim. It gives a little more grip. Um, with, uh, this is a VS cup. So it's a shallow cup with kind of a V shape on the sides to give a little more room. So it makes it feel like a larger cup, although it's, it's actually, it's his S cup. Um, so it's a VS cup. Um, but it's, you know, it's pretty close. You know, if you had to choose a stock mouthpiece to say, what's it closest to, it'd be a three C, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's a long story to say, man, I play on a three C. <laughs> <laughs> but it's 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 not a 3C, but it's yeah. that's what it's close to. And if anybody would want to get one, they could just contact Greg Black, and you know, he can uh, hook you up. But um, yeah. Greg is Greg's the best man. I, I don't yeah. think there's anybody better than him that I, yeah. that I'm aware of or that I know personally when it comes to understanding mouthpieces. Yeah, yeah. There's lot lots of uh, lots of stuff, man. It's like you can go down a rabbit hole real quick with mouthpieces, you know, with, oh, with yeah. rims and cups and backboards and and stuff like that. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny because, you know, you, you have the people that are in that camp of, you know, 
one one horn, one mouthpiece for every occasion, and, and then you have the people that will go way to the other side. When you uh, you know, you, uh, like the the great stories about Lou Soloff and you know his <laughs> every other measure, he's changing oh, mouthpieces. Man. I could I could talk about Lou for the next ten hours if you wanted, man. Oh my God, yeah, he was nuts. Loved yeah. him. Yeah, but you know, it's, it's uh, like Bobby always talked about. You know, the, the you know the right tool for the job. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, I, you mentioned earlier, like uh, you said during your your pre Ray Charles days uh, working at the bank, you were transcribing Woody Shaw. Um, who were some of the influences that you had in in your playing stylistically? Um, man, you I, you name it, man. I mean, I, I listen to everybody that I can. You know. I mean, Woody Shaw, of course, um, Freddie Hubbard, Winton, uh, Kenny Dorham, Kenny Wheeler, uh, Clifford Brown, um, Joe Wilder. I love Joe Wilder's playing. Um, Booker Little. Um, I mean, there's so many. Dizzy, of course, Louis Armstrong, Roy Eldridge. Um, I love a lot of people's playing, man. Um yeah. Bubba Miley, uh, Cootie Williams, you know, from the, for the Ellington, um, you know, back to the old, you know, what I said earlier, you can find a positive and negative in anything. And I know a lot of trumpet players who just choose to find negative things about other trumpet players and like to talk a lot of shit about them, yeah. um, you know, and I, I'm, I recognize that very easily in people because I used to be that guy. And when I was younger and the older I've gotten, the more, I, I've seen that as just being somebody else being insecure about themselves. And, you know, there's so much beauty in so many different players. Clark Terry, I can't believe I didn't mention him. Snooky Young. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, there's so many incredible players that I love to listen to. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm for every one person I say, there's a hundred that I'm not saying. You know, and um, they're modern players too. I love that uh, young guy Ambrose... Um, I don't want to mispronounce his last name. Do you know who I'm talking about? His name is AK something. I don't want to. Yeah, and I, I don't want to butcher it either. I, I've i met him a, a couple times, even played with him. With, he, he was a soloist with us with Jazz Lincoln Center Orchestra. I, I love his playing. Very unique approach. Very intervallic. There are a lot of great players um, uh, that have influenced me, you know. Well, if, there were, if there's like, uh, you know, it, you you hit on a lot of my favorites, you know. I, I, I Woody and and I think Woody was a person that just kind of blew my mind the first time I heard him and his approach mm-hmm. to pentatonics and and things like that. Just it just completely was uh, uh, opened my my mind to uh, some of the possibilities of uh, harmonic possibilities on the horn. Um, but uh, you know, so you, you get the standards, you know, the Woodies, the the Freddies, the you know Clifford Brown, obviously. Um, but if if you had to pick like one or two players like that that aren't in that first mentioned group, you know, that you know, it's like you know, yeah, these are people that you may not have heard of, but these are definitely people you should check out because of of some of the stuff that they've done. Yeah, well, one person I didn't mention who was actually, if I had to choose one that I would go to, it would be Miles Davis. Um, I didn't mention him in the first group of people for some reason, but um, 
I'd choose one, it would be Miles. But um, in terms of guys who were unknown, um, Walt Blanton was my trumpet teacher in Vegas, and I mentioned him earlier. You know, um, he had a sound like nobody else's. His tone was incredibly rich and vibrant and just full of life, and his creativity was on the highest of levels. Um, and that's somebody not a lot of people know about, you know, unless they're, you know, Indiana, Bill Adams students from Indiana University or went to UNLV. But Walt Blanton, um, Kenny Wheeler is someone else who has been a huge impact on me, who a lot of straight-ahead jazz players don't really check him out, don't listen to him, because he doesn't play or didn't play bebop or straight-ahead jazz. His, you know, his music was pigeonholed or, or called uh, ECM music because it was recorded on that label. But he had such a beauty, beauty in his sound and sonority in his sound that for me, he's one of the greatest of all time. Um, so that that's somebody who comes to mind in that realm who isn't as like in everybody's top 10. He's certainly in mine. Yeah. You know, cool. Yeah. And you know, I think that's, that's a big thing is that, uh, I, for people who have been around the block, shall we say, um, you know, you get turned on to a lot of, uh, influences that the general public don't have. And it's just, it's just nice to start, uh, you know, spreading the love to some of the people that, that maybe don't have all the PR that, that other players have, uh, not saying that they don't deserve it, but, uh, you know, just, just getting people to expose to, uh, new sounds, new concepts. And, uh, it's that, that wonderful dichotomy that exists that, um, in many ways, the only way that our, that music is going to move forward is by exploring its roots a little bit deeper. Um, so, you know, there, there's just a lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there that I think people will listen to and go, oh, wow, that's a different approach. And I never really thought about that. And then that's going to open the doors of creativity for themselves. So, yeah. so thank you for sharing those. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap up here. Uh, but uh, before we wrap up, I always do this. It's a rapid fire round. I call it speed studies. And uh, I'm going to throw out a bunch of questions to you. They're going to be about all kinds of topics, not all of them music related. Um, and I just want your quickest, most honest answer. All right, go for it. Are you ready? Okay, here's your first one. Who's the biggest influence on your life that is not a trumpet player? Rosa. All right. Should I explain who she is? Uh, yeah, if you want to, go ahead. She was a, a lady, she passed away a couple years ago, um, who was a teacher of mine. Um, she was a curandera. Uh, which is a medicine woman. Um, and she lived in the mountains, upstate New York, and taught me life lessons. I would go up and do healing circles, spend a week with her, learning about life in beyond trumpet, you know. And um, she was an amazing, amazing teacher to me. Okay, awesome. All right, what's your favorite book? Man, I have it right here. That's so funny because I've given away like four copies of this and I needed a copy because I want to reread it. The Four Agreements. Okay, that's a good one. All right. So go check that one out. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? Uh, I got to say it's the one, the new Spike Lee one that just came out. What's it called? Uh, uh. 
I don't know. I haven't seen it. I forget the name of it. It's about, you know, f- f- I think five guys who went to Vietnam and yeah. they went back to find a gold that they buried. Yeah, yeah. I just, you know, I thought that was just horribly made. Okay. All right. Well, I won't watch it then. Uh, no, if check you, it out. <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't a trumpet player, what would you want to be? A chef. Mm. I've get, been getting a lot of answers like that recently. I think I'm going to have to get all the chefs together. We'll have a big trumpet cook-off. Uh, what's your favorite drink? Uh, water. <laughs> right. I don't drink alcohol. I gave up alcohol 10 years ago. And um, honestly, water is probably my favorite drink. Mm, can't go wrong. Uh, you can have a dinner party. And at this dinner party, you can invite any three living people. Who would they be? Uh, Michelle and Barack Obama. We'll count them as one. Okay. Um, but they both have to be there, though. <laughs> exactly. Um, let's say, I'd say Winton. And um, Ken Burns. Hmm. He could document the whole thing. There you go. All right. Uh, same scenario. You're having a dinner party, but this time you can invite any three people from history. Louis Armstrong, um, Martin Luther King, and Miles Davis. Hmm. <laughs> uh, uh, that would be that would be fun. Uh, as long as Miles doesn't try to cut Louie, that would be. Uh... Uh. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Lacquer plated or raw? Uh, raw. Okay. What's your favorite quote? Um, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Uh, what is your fate? What is your greatest fear uh doing something in this life that would be harmful to my son Mm. okay uh you could be granted one superpower what would it be one superpower do i have an option of what the powers would be any like the choice between any superpower any superpower I guess invisibility would be kind of kind of fun, kind of neat. <laughs> I could also get you in a lot of trouble, but not they can't see you. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what board planes ask- without anybody knowing it, you can go anywhere in the world. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it's a, you could you could find out a whole lot of stuff. Um, what aspect of trumpet playing do you feel is the most overrated? High notes. What aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most underrated? Sound. Uh, You're given the ability to go back in time to meet your younger self and and give yourself one piece of advice about music. What would it be? Listen more. Okay. And while you're there, you can give yourself one piece of advice about life in general. Listen more. There you go. Uh, (laughs) All right. And the final question, what do you want your legacy to be? Um, 
making a difference in future generations in a positive way through uh, through the sound of music and the education of music, both. Mm. Uh, well, Kenny, my man, you are definitely on track for fulfilling that legacy. Uh, so uh, you you're an amazing player. And uh, you're doing great things, uh, both uh, with your, your music and with uh, your uh, organization, with joy. Um, and I hope that uh, everybody can, can please check that out and do what you can to help support uh, what Candy is trying to do, especially if you're uh, in the Las Vegas area, jump on that. Um, and just it, if you're a local person somewhere else, uh, you know, support the arts however you can. You know, we, we need we need music and we need more musicians um, because uh, as we've talked about before, that's a healing art. So I, I thank you for your time. Uh, any last words? No, man, just I want to thank you for your time, man. I appreciate you, man. Right, Pleasure well, to be here. Yeah, it's been my pleasure, and uh, I'm going to have to get myself one of those uh, Indigo Plunger mutes, uh, especially if it can make me sound like you. Uh, give well, me a little... if you get one, give me a call, man. We we can uh, we can do a Skype, you know, or a, a Zoom lesson over it. You know, I can give you some exercises to shed it. You know. Oh, all right, man. I want to get that cootie sound <laughs> going, man. And cootie and Snooky and and Clark on on Plunger. Those are like three of my. Uh, oh yeah, you must uh, know the Oscar Peterson record, Oscar Oscar Peterson plus one. Oh Mr. yeah, Ooh. oh man, Brotherhood of Man. Oh man, <laughs> nasty, 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 nasty. All right, well, so thank you very much, Kenny, and thank you for joining the hang. And as always, peace and slide grease. We're out. Hey, thank you so much for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating connection through our mutual love for the trumpet life. I hope that you learned a few things about today's guest and had some laughs along the way. Don't forget to give us a review. We love those five-star ratings. And please share this podcast with your friends. We want to see our hang grow for show. Have a suggestion for a future topic or a guest? Hit me up at thetrumpetgurus at gmail.com. Our opening theme was written and performed by Lexi Signor, and all other music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. So in the words of W.C. Handy, life is like a trumpet. If you don't put anything into it, you don't get anything out. So go out there and let your trumpet sound. And I'll see you at the next hang.